0: For episode 94 of No Guitar Is Safe, we're going to plug in with Grammy-winning guitarist Jamie Keim, who you might know from Zappa Plays Zappa, Dr. John, Michelle Branch, Jewel, and other acts, and also his great solo record, Alleys, which we're going to hear right after this short little helicopter ride. Today's show is brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player. Play better. Sound better. No guitar is better. What's up pickers and pluckers, strummers, sliders, tappers, slappers, and e How are you? Thanks for listening to No Guitar Is Safe. I gotta tell you, Sometimes I feel downright guilty. I feel like I'm pulling a Tom Sawyer on people. I go over to Jamie's home studio, which he refers to as Madison Square Living Room. Here's a world-class Grammy-winning guitarist, and he's giving me a great guitar lesson and telling me about his life, and I'm getting paid for it. should be the other way around. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not making fat stacks or anything. I do it for the love of it. But maybe after 94 podcasts, I've become 100 air? So, you know, that's a Greg Koch line, by the way. Anyhow, I'm digressing. Jamie Kime is a phenomenal musician. I've had the pleasure of seeing him many times. seen him on big stages like the Greek Theater in LA when with Zappa Plays Zappa, they did a double bill with Dream Theater. That was an epic show. I also saw another epic bill where Dweezil and Jamie were opening the show with their band, of course, opening for Jeff Beck. Again, that was like a co-headliner kind of thing. I think they did like a full hour set. Amazing. But I gotta say, there's something really wonderful about watching Jamie at the Baked Potato in Los Angeles. Very small, world famous jazz fusion hole in the wall. It's completely unpretentious the stage is so close to the audience and so close to the floor that the artist talks to you and you can talk back to them between songs. It's just a wonderful spot, but you know what? It can be intimidating. It's kind of a rite of passage. If you move to LA and you're a guitar player, you got to play the baked potato. I don't mean just sit in and play a little blues with somebody or back up a singer or play a couple riffs. You got to be there when the musician next to you has just finished the most amazing solo. They've taken it to the moon and back, taken the entire audience and the band on some intense musical improvisatory journey. And the thing erupts like a volcano and then it just calms down and you're down to hi-hats and maybe a little ride cymbal, bass. What are you gonna do? What are you going to say in that moment? There might not even be any chord changes, right? That's easy. Soloing over one chord, you could do that all day. Could you? Room full of pro musicians staring at you, probably a lot of them guitar players. Do they get in your head? How many ideas do you have? How much can you say with the key of E Dorian? Well, one of the best players I've ever seen in this situation is Jamie Kim he always tells an amazing story with his guitar solos and he has such great tone and deep vocabulary and a true reverence for the awesomeness of music and how you could never learn it all. So in other words, he's a perpetual student of music, and he's going to share some of that with us, and and we'll be students today hanging out with Jamie. He's also going to talk about some magical nights, like, you know, the night that they all won a Grammy and hung out at the Staples Center and everything went right. That's a great story. Or the time that he was playing with Jewel, great singer-strummer. Pop star, really cool stories, working with Dr. John, you know, he worked with Dr. John for a couple years, that's why I called Jamie out of the blue, I mean, we've been working on this, putting this together for a few months, but when we all got the heartbreaking news that Dr. John died a couple weeks ago, I called up Jamie, or I texted him, I'm like, okay man, we gotta do this, so here we are, Jamie's very kind too, he's gonna open up with Right Place, Wrong Time, the famous Dr. John tune. He even tolerates me singing a couple lines. I hope you will, too. We're just jamming, just loosening up, and uh, I appreciate Jamie letting us throw down on that. We'll get into all kinds of other stuff. Jamie's playing through a deluxe reverb at living room volume, or more like bedroom volume. We're really quiet. I'm playing through a Pro Junior, one of Jamie's cool old amplifiers, and things like the size of a lunchbox. Playing one of his Strats, Jamie's playing a very cool Stratocaster, which, which I'll let him tell you about in his own voice.
1: It's a parts guitar that was made for me by George Tripps and Rob Timmons as a birthday present a couple of years ago, and it's uh, Saucy Incorporated is the name of George Tripps' company. Uh, George Tripps, of course, the gentleman behind way huge, and um, so this is a Saucy Parts caster is what it says there. I've always loved Hiram Bullock, so I wanted a Hiram type of configuration. So he made me. It's like the humbucker in the neck, humbucker in the in the bridge, with a with a single in the middle. So that's what that's what we did. These are Arcane Rob Timmons Arcane uh, humbuckers, and then this is a, a Duncan Classic stack in the middle, and it's a Callahan bridge. Got great components on it. B Hefner neck, M J T body. It was you know Eric Gorish over at Tour Supply put it together.
0: In fact, there was so much good stuff in this episode, including so much lesson material that there wasn't enough room to put it all. I have a bunch more, so I'm going to do a bonus episode with Jamie ASAP, where we'll get into some even deeper improvisation approaches, such as throwing giant steps changes, you know, Coltrane changes at your rock fusion solo or doing harp harmonics. But don't worry, we're about to get super deep on some other badass guitar improvisation techniques on this episode as well. Again, this record is called Allie's Great Album. Jamie put it out four years ago? Thanks for listening to No Guitar Is Safe. Please tell a friend about it, and please subscribe Thanks to Zoom for the recorder. And again, much appreciated to all of you for listening to No Guitar Is Safe. Let's rev up the copter and swoop over to Jamie's crib. keyboard part (laughs) I was in the right place but it must have been the wrong time (laughs) I said the right thing but I used to use the wrong line hanging in the valley hanging with Jamie (laughs) kind Jamie in the house Jamie yeah I love that part (laughs) <laughs> uh, thank you man. Do one for the well, that doctor. Was silly. Yeah. yeah man. That was fun. Thanks. So. so man, tell me what was it like playing with Dr. John? When did you play with him?
1: I started playing with him in um I think it was around April of 2015 and I played with him up until um I guess, the the beginning of 2017 or, like, the very end yeah. of 2016. So it was like a year and a half. Yeah, somewhere between a year and a half and two years. It wasn't long, you know, but it was, um, yeah, it was great. It was fun. You know, I caught him at the end, you know. It was the yeah. end of his Well, of I know his, that sometimes you would do, run. like,
0: maybe two or three week runs, but then maybe you started tapering down to, like, weekend runs. or. Yeah. But yeah. what was the guy like? Well, you must have been on the bus with him. What, what yeah, was, at, what was at first, like? we,
1: the, when I first started going out, it was, you know, just proper – Plus touring, And um, when I first got called, I was just getting called to just go and, and cover like a two week run. They flew me out to New Orleans and we had a rehearsal at a really nice studio there in, in New Orleans. And um, we rehearsed for a couple of hours. You what was it like
0: for you just walking in? Probably it was almost a all brand new people? And- yeah, yeah. Never I didn't met know any
1: of them. I didn't know anybody. I was you know, and, and the and the drummer was this really legendary New Orleans drummer named Herlin Riley, who's played with like Wenton Marsalis and all that. And he yeah. incredible drummer. And I you know, so I'm like right off the bat, I'm like, oh holy shit. And here I am, this guy from LA that they're flying in, you know. So I'm kinda like, oh man. I didn't really know how it was gonna go or what to expect. And I had to learn a bunch of tunes like in fairly short you know, cause I got a list of songs to learn that he wanted me to have under my belt. And it was something like 45 songs. And I have, you know, like two days to really kind of, a lot of them are fairly simple, you know, f- yeah. you know, if you're comparing them to like, you know, Frank Zappa compositions, you know, they were a lot of them were blues based, but still there's a challenge in that too, because they all start sounding alike. You can very <laughs> easily get them mixed up in your mind. And, but we, Kind of did a really quick little rehearsal and then got on. There, the tour bus was outside. We got on it and we drove to Shreveport, and um, and that was the the next night was our first gig in in Shreveport, Louisiana, and uh, and it it was fine. And ironically, almost ten years to the day, the first time I had ever seen Dr. John was almost ten years to the day in Shreveport. Oh wow! You know, from the time that I started playing with him, like I had. That was the first time i ever saw him play was in shreveport in this auditorium there and i was there for some something i can't even remember what now but
0: so you've played with some of the the greatest west coast musicians around and everywhere else but like what's now you've seen well i mean everyone and i think rightly so has such reverence for the new orleans groove and the way that music everything from the meters and dixieland all the way yeah what's what was your big take on the difference from the way they play or do stuff or groove yeah. or compared to yeah out here
1: it was a, it was a there was definitely a learning curve because i had i was coming from the world of of uh you know everything's very much grid-like you know what i mean but um that was yeah. the weirdest thing for me because uh one of the takeaways i i got from at least from playing with mac was that you know, the music, it, it it breathed and it ebbed and it flowed. And, um, and Herlin was a, a master at playing that style and at following Mac. Like you didn't really notice as a listener and even sometimes as a player that the music was kind of pushing and pulling and sort of... Yeah. It had a really a real breathy quality to it, you know. But that was definitely one of the harder things for me to get used to because I'm, you know, I'm like, it's it's, it's dragging, you know, it's rushing, you know, because that's how. Is it me? <laughs> yeah. Is 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 this you know, is is this me doing this? Am I not doing something right? And um, I, I was definitely kind of the odd man out because I was sort of the new guy. But you know, Herlim was really patient with me and really, and he was all about just kind of wanting to you know, educate me a little bit on the, and he's a super great guy and really nice guy, and I don't know that I would have been able to, if I would have made it on the gig had I had a more Im- impatient drummer, but he was a really super great guy and, and, and kind of explained, he's like, no, man, he's like, the music just kind of, it sort of breathes, you know, and you gotta, you know, and, and Herlin would, like, watch Mac's body language and, and would sort of, like, push and pull with him and it was just so used to playing with him that you didn't even notice that the, that it was doing that stuff and it was great and once I kind of got used to it it was really awesome feeling you know
0: yeah that's a real deal man yeah. I mean the great groups do what you're talking about I think yeah. you know from, Yeah. from jazz players to Led Zeppelin there's not necessarily a click track though it's funny if you listen to Right Place right, Wrong Time yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to think, did they track that to a clicker? It's so tight, the original.
1: You know, I don't know. I yeah. never asked them if they ever did. I can't imagine that they did. I mean, so much of that so stuff, locked. especially on his first couple of records, a lot of that stuff was almost just freeform, avant-garde, you know, odd meter. <laughs> you know, it was, I can't imagine that it was, any of that was cut to a click.
2: I've been in red right been the wrong time I have said the right thing but a mother used the wrong been in the must
1: have been right time a like, uh, right place sort of became one of my favorite ones to play just because it, that was one of the most challenging to make it feel right and uh, you know because that part is so simple if you you know that Um, on one of the shows that we did once, uh, Leo from uh, Leo Nocentelli from The Meters came and, yeah. and sat in with us and played it, and, and he and I was talking. I was watching him play it, and immediately when he, when he started playing it, it felt like a thousand times better <laughs> than it did when I was playing it. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, how are you doing that? And he's like, man, I'm just playing, and he was doing the little, the pickup notes. Very simple, you know. And but even if he were right here right now and he played that same thing, I guarantee it would groove like eight hundred times harder than the way it is right now with me playing it. But I kind of like was able to incorporate myself into the rhythm section and make that feel, you know, what what I thought was what I thought felt really nice. And and I guess Mac, yeah. you know, liked it as well because he asked me to join his band. So, you know, fuck like, yeah. So yeah.
0: man, I well, was. That's kind of how you are in life. I think you, you're yeah. what I really appreciate about you. You're never trying to like stick out or be like. I mean, you're humble is an understatement. About <laughs> Jamie, kind like you're just so devoted to the music and not trying to be a rock star. Yeah, <laughs> too enough. many
1: of those. Yeah, there's <laughs> too, enough, of, too, enough <laughs> of those. Enough, yeah. enough. Like you know, guitar shredder, parlor trickery type of guys. You know, it would be you know, an Instagram is full of them. I go on Instagram and I see these guys that are just brilliant players and. They're, they sit down and they just you know they've worked out these amazing pieces just for solo guitar but it's like I, I work better in a band I'm I'm not that guy it's just like you know that's why I was a little reluctant to even do this because I'm not I'm not going to d- sit and dazzle anybody with my parlor tricks you know I'm just gonna it's like hey, come see me at the baked potato and but that's sort of what I do me. you know
0: <laughs> it's funny yeah a musician sits to will be like so and so has just been hired to teach a new guitar player which is always great Yeah, done this, done this, done that, done that. Amassed sixty thousand fans on Instagram. Like that's like now a a calling card thing. Yeah, like a you know kind of a.
1: It's weird. You know, it's weird being. It's like a new skill. Social media is is a
0: new skill. Yeah, um, Yeah. separately. Now, now you have a song on your record called Woodley Park. Just yeah, kind of seems like it's in five. Kind of like, kind of like Black Widow.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's that type of yeah. Black Widow Spider, the Doctor John tune was in five.
2: Candle did cafe down in Duarte, they play and
0: shake I What Calvary. was your rhythm part on, on, on Black, Black Widow?
1: Widow on, yeah. uh, you know, that, that song was one of those that would tend to be different every night when we'd play it, um, and um. I would try to sort of cop some of the things that were on the the studio recording. I would, you know, turn on like a a tremolo and it would just be this sort of... Sometimes I would drop my D. Uh, Yeah, I would do a drop D thing. Other times I wouldn't. It would just depend on how I felt that night, but it would... Just this kind of like real, you know, like... Yeah. Floaty kind of, you know, and he was playing this... uh, And and Mac would be playing on the piano, would be playing... um, on the studio recording, there's like a a, a Rhodes that's kind of yeah. playing this, uh, and um and I believe that was Mac on the record doing that, but um, but he would kind of play this little piano part that was just sort of implying that, and then I would you know over this and. Uh, Yeah, and and that's kind of, and then. uh, And just try and create this sort of like real atmospheric thing. And then as he would start singing, I would start just creeping in with that rhythm. Behind him. Yeah.
3: Because
1: his piano part would get more and more sparse as he would start singing that. And and he would just kind of let the band sort of carry it. and that Whatever. was the whole song it never changed chords it just stayed right there on that it oh, was in it D trippy. it yep. would just hang there and just trance out and then uh, and then there was a big section in the middle where you know he wanted like a big guitar because on the record there's a you know there's these kind of you know this kind of the sixth interval sort of things which yeah. I believe is, is actually him playing yeah. the guitar on that track as well. well. Yeah, I could yeah. be wrong about that. But um, but um, he wanted this big epic guitar solo in the middle. And uh, so I would, you know, turn on a fuzz and ride the volume knob on the guitar and just kind of, you know, That's try fun. and build up this big solo. And it was different every night. I would tend to take kind of a short solo and play sort of <laughs> conservatively, but he would be like, he'd be like, no, man, I want you to play, play, you know, do your thing. And... You know, he was all about you just kind of being yourself, and because I'm trying to like, you know, what would Leo yeah. you Nocentelli know, do, you know? And he's like,
0: he's like, fuck right. that, do you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> I can't get the groove like Leo, but if I play something underneath, would you could take a little?
1: Sure. So I might do this. Uh... Like that, you know, and uh, and it would, you know, and sometimes it would, it was kind of a long solo, so it would build, and I would start really sparse and slow, and just kind of build it up to her. It was just kind of more of a, you know, the, you know, the more, the more intense and dynamically it would, it, the more it would build up in intensity, uh, the more you kind of get into more of the. You know, the more kind of licks, you know what yeah. I mean? But, uh, you know, I, was, I would like to try and kind of, uh, you know, just outline really nice, colorful notes. You know, it's all Dorian, but then you throw in some, you know, some little...
0: you know yeah, little I love lines it when like you do that. that kind of stuff i talked to you once for a guitar player magazine and yeah. you told me like all kind of i think we were talking about d minor you're like yeah you're like well you could play c major seven over d minor i guess that's kind of a dorian thing yeah like yeah or no no you were telling me like c sharp major seven c sharp oh,
1: major seven yeah now how, yeah. Was,
0: how does that work over like if like over
1: a um, and key of D minor. Well, again, it's you're kind of thinking of you're. It's it sort of comes from the triad, the triad world, but you can also get into like uh, seventh chords as well. Um, there's a, a couple of ways of approaching that. Like I, I always like just taking kind of weird scales and yeah. harmonizing them and then finding r- real common, what we used to call it MI garden variety chords, um, you know, like yeah. major sevens and minor sevens within this otherwise kind of, you know, strange, uh, you know, strange scale. And um, take, for example, there's a, there's this,
3: uh
1: there's a scale that's, that's built. Uh, it's just Whole step, half step, half step, uh, whole step, half step, half step. It's one of the, um, Who's the uh, the, the Slonimsky? No, Messiaen. Ma- I think is his oh. name. He was like a, a French composer, but he had the uh, the modes of limited transposition, and he, there was there was like a, a I, think oh, there shit. Was, I think there was maybe like eight or nine of them, but they were all some of them like one of them is the whole tone scale, for example. I think like the first mode of limited transposition is the whole tone, you know, because it has you know some yeah. of them have a because it's limited in the in the um, in the, the number of times it could be transposed and also in its harmonization. So uh, I think the fourth one is this scale that I kind of latched onto. So in one octave you have, so the notes are uh, C. I think this is the the fourth mode of limited transposition, if I'm not mistaken. And it's um, C, in the key of C, it's C, D, uh, E-flat, E-natural, uh, excuse the enharmonics right. that I'm sure aren't correct here, but uh, C, D, uh, D-sharp, E, F-sharp, G, G-sharp, a sharp or B flat, B natural, and then you're back to C. So one, two, three, four. So it's like nine, it's a nine note kind
0: of. Okay, quick timeout, because while this scale might have a complex sound, fingering wise, it's one of the easiest patterns you will ever learn on the guitar. It's easier than a major scale or even a pentatonic scale, I would say. Let's get the root in our ears. This is C. I'm playing it with my third finger at the eighth fret of the sixth string, the lowest string. Well, we're gonna start on B flat. So start on the sixth fret of the sixth string and play half steps, say that three times in a row. Sixth fret of the sixth string, go up in half steps, three notes. Boom, that's the whole thing. Now, jump up one string, fifth fret of the fifth string. See how that numerically matches? Same thing on the fourth string, fourth fret of the fourth string. And then third fret of the third string, seeing the pattern there. And you've completed the scale. Of course, if you do the second string, it will stay on the third fret. And the first string will start on the second fret. So you've got this repeating three note figure on all six strings. Looks like a diagonal column of notes going across the fretboard and that column, of course, is three notes wide on each string. A
3: little...
1: Yeah, it's very symmetrical, right? Right. But, um, and and also on the guitar, it, uh, you know, it lies, uh, you know, it lies, you can... You know, you can do those yeah, kind of like, it lies really easily.
0: Um, right so you're just jumping on the strings like starting in the yeah i'm just
1: yeah i'm kind of pulling off the last you
0: know (laughs) like that's one of those things so much easier on a guitar than on a piano
1: exactly and it just lies you know those kind of symmetrical like whole tone scales you know You know those yeah. kind of runs you can do it's just like it sounds it's you know it sounds impressive but it's just really such a such an easy guitaristic thing to do you know anyways kind of getting back to that that fourth mode of limited transposition it's it's odd and but if you kind of look at it and you start picking it apart, and you really—even if you like draw it out on like a, ne- a gr- you know, piece of yeah. grid paper, a neck grid—you'll find chords that are kind of buried in there. Like, uh, like you could build a C minor seven chord.
0: Out of that, yeah. Out
1: of that, you know, right off of the first maybe note. Two, there's like a G a sharp, sharp, minor seven. A, I mean, you can go through and you can find all kinds of triads throughout there, all kinds yeah. of augmented triads, all kinds of diminished triads, minor triads and, and major triads. And then you can, and then anytime that you have a, uh, so for example, contained right within that that, that fourth mode of limited transposition, starting on the C note, there's a, there's a, a like a G-sharp minor 7 chord contained within that. So, yeah, we could be jamming in C minor. Yeah. You can also build a G-sharp minor 7 chord, just as an example, out of that same scale. So now I could superimpose a G minor 7.
0: What kind of groove should I play underneath you? You know, like, just sort of like...
1: Yeah, funky's always
0: good. <laughs> yeah, thinking, you know, yeah. My Funny Valentine or something yeah. like that.
1: Yeah. So I would start with maybe... Uh now... Thank you. So, you know, I was uh, I was kind of playing that. You know, I was doing a little bit of. Uh, yeah. You know, so I'm playing. I'm kind of superimposing that G sharp minor seven. Yeah. On top of the C minor 7, and then also the parent scale, which was at... Which, by the way, does contain a major third, which I kind of landed on a couple of times, you know. But, you know, that's because, like, in my mind, I'm trying to visualize, which has a major third in it, you know, against the C minor 7 chord is a little jarring, but if you kind of pass through it and treat it, you know, accordingly, it...
3: That's
0: awesome. So that's one way of yeah. superimposing a certain one harmony you might superimpose yeah. in there, and that's
1: kind of a super arcane yeah. way of thinking, and maybe not the most ergonomic way of 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 uh, of thinking of things on the fly. But I mean, when I'm just sitting home. Watching Maury Povich, in, you know, <laughs> yeah. with some like, you know, neck grid paper. I'll do shit like that just because I think it's interesting, you know. And you know, and sometimes it'll come spilling out on the gig because I've, you know, I've yeah. I've done it enough just here in the in the oh, living yeah, room, yeah. you know. I've done it enough here in Madison Square Bedroom, <laughs> to where it's gonna, you know, come out on the bandstand. But um, another thing, you know, so that's that's kind of the idea is that you're really just kind of you're thinking of. Uh, you're thinking of other scales that these that these chords kind of relate to. And then sometimes it's not even like that whole thing that you mentioned earlier where, you know, you have a D minor seven and we were talking about playing a C major seven, arpeggio on top of it. C sharp major seven. Yeah. Um, so uh, the D minor seven's a chord and, you know, yeah. you can do that sort of thing. So yeah. kind of creates these little tensions but what those notes are in relation to if you kind of analyze them what those notes of a c sharp major seven triad are in relation to d minor seven it's not really that out you know you're playing Mm -hmm. the c the c sharp is the major seven it's a leading tone which is you know a harmonic minor or melodic minor it's contained yeah. in those. Um, the The third of C sharp major seven is the flat third of, of nice. you know, and then you have the fifth of C sharp, which is the flat fifth. of the blues note. Yeah, the blues note. We play that every day. And then, uh, and then the major seven yeah. of C sharp is the flat seven. So it's not really that out, but it's just if you, when you play it as a, you know, Against this type of harmony, it's a little bit jarring, but it creates these really great tensions that yeah. kind of can really pull you really nicely back into mm. you know, your tonic chord.: Modes of limited oh, transposition. yeah I've, I've, I've recently kind of got into that through yeah. a, a keyboard player named Brian Charette, who's a, this amazing player yeah. from New York, and he comes out here to L.A. a couple times a year, and he and I get to play together a little bit and he was <clears throat> I'd heard of it. Years ago, I'd sort of heard it, but I think at the time it was so far over my head, but then he brought it up again. He and I started talking about it, and I was like, oh, yeah, and then I started kind of digging into it a little bit and, and kind of rediscovering it. There's a, a really yeah. cool player on the East Coast named Matt Henderson that is into that, and he does a lot of that, you know, like... Place with lots of fuzz and really legato kind of approach, and he will like really utilize the shit out of them, you know, in their natural form. Rather, I'm kind of taking them and like, how can I take these and massage these into like a standard two-five-one environment, you know? Um, But I, I, I've been getting into players that are a little bit more outside lately because the guitar in general has become a little, a little boring to me.
0: (laughs) You mean the standard stuff, I guess. Yeah. Like, yeah just real quickly, do you practice every day
1: i i kind of i do in some form or another lately it 's just more about uh, I, my practice comes in the form of learning songs for for gigs, be it yeah. a gig at the baked potato or or something that I have to do or or some uh, you know someone yeah. that i 'm playing with you know who has original tunes. I will sit down with like those kind of modes and i 'll sit and write things out and and, so you
0: gotta guitar in your hand every day working on something. Yeah,
1: like at some point every day I do have it in my hand and working on it. I mean I've never been a I've never been a Paul Gilbert type of practicer where it's like, all right, all right I'm gonna sit here and practice these sweet picking patterns and every key with a metronome on and yeah. you know, and, and doing these these sequences and thirds and fourths and fifths and that's never been yeah. me. I've more been about, you know, um, you know, it's like if I have to, if I know that there's something that I have to um, learn, I'll, I'll, I'll learn the songs and then that'll be my practice. I'll play with a metronome, but I'll just turn the metronome on and play, you know. Yeah. And I'll try and incorporate ideas and little things or concepts that I'm working on. I've always been a little bit more of a, a concept based player. So then I would just try and incorporate those ideas.
0: Yeah, well, and, I mean, you put a lot of work into that stuff and it really shows. Yeah. And you always have great tone. Let me. Let me I'd love to hear how you evolved and where you came from. Where'd you grow up, man?
1: I was born in San Diego. and I, I was you are one, so SoCal. Yeah, SoCal, so yeah, uh, my whole life. And uh, went to high school down there, and then you know, came up right out of high school to go to MI when I was like
0: 18. I just turned 18. And so did you have a musical family in the beginning? How did you, what got you into music?
1: Uh, I don't know. I just kind of fell into it. My dad was a music my well before I was born my dad was a musician. He he had played he you know he played in bands and played he was a trumpet player, he played upright bass, he played the drums. He was in the military so hence San Diego. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So uh yeah, that I I I think I just I remember just really from a super early age just really being into music. I had a couple of sisters who were older than me and they you know at that at that time it was Zeppelin and Hendrix and, and and the like so I would I would sort of get the trickle down thing you know with their they had the yeah. records and I would something magical about they'd go to school them. and I'd go and listen to them in their room
0: <laughs> sweet yeah I'm yeah. always envious of people who had the older sibling I had a younger sibling yeah whose record collection you could you know yeah sneak into when they weren't around <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that's great and what possessed you to grab a guitar
1: well I I think you know, I first started playing drums when I was like really young, like six or seven years old. I, I, My mom tricked me to a guy for drum lessons. I started taking drum lessons. And then I don't really know. I just kind of started yeah. seeing, you know, I was probably something I saw on TV. You know, I probably saw a band on TV and was like, I want to play guitar. That's cool. You know, because you're up front. And yeah, so I just started, we had a, you know, one of my sisters had an old beat up guitar and. I kind of grabbed that. I think it was actually like a steel string guitar that had nylon strings on it. Remember, you'd do that as a kid. And I started sort of teaching myself how to play, and I picked up a few things by ear, and then I started... I got lessons with a guy that would come over to our house and just, like, show me.
0: You know... Peter Frampton. Yeah,
1: that you know, at the time, like, you know... I was at that age where Frampton Kim's Alive came out, and that like sort of like shaped a large part of my you know, adolescence. Um, yeah. And he'd show me like a bunch of songs, just random tunes. And, and uh, a couple of years later, I got an- when I was about 13 or 14, I got another teacher that was a, more of a, a serious player, and, and then he started really getting me into all the... Because I, I was really inquisitive. Yeah. I was like, yeah, but why is, why is that called a D? You know, I get it that you're telling me that's a D7. What does that seven mean? Why why is it called? So I started taking lessons with a guy that I wound up studying with um, all the way up through high school, and uh, his name is Dave Davenport, and a great, still a great friend of mine, and uh, and he and he was the one that kind of started getting me into like the the theory side of things a little bit because I was very I, that for me that wasn't a chore. I was very much I ate that shit yeah. up. Because that was the stuff I wanted to know. I was, you know.
0: I can tell. Well, I really love the way that you've blended your love of theory with, fucking real tones, man. Like you have oh, great thanks, tones. Man. Like thank you. Real quickly, give us like a rundown of what your uh, your rig is like these days. Like uh, when I think of you, I think of great tube tones, super yeah. great distortion, maybe a really tasty echo from a separate amp, like yeah. or something like like it's working. Yeah, no I've done all that.
1: Sometimes not the most practical. <laughs> rig, but yeah, I've done all that, and, and uh, it's it's I've used a lot of different amps over the years from like you know like the mid '60s uh, Fender basement heads, yeah. um, which I came to really love. I at one point I had probably like 13 of those because at the time Dang. you could get them really cheap. You know, in San Diego at the like pawn shops, you get them for like 75 bucks. You know, so I would just buy them up, and if one me. didn't sound great, I would just have another one. I I still have like I think four or five but um and then a Marshall Plexi I had a really nice 67 Plexi for a long time uh 100 watt I would use that yeah. currently a Jim Kelly I have an old Jim Kelly uh a bunch of old Fender amps um and then I would do the 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 parallel you know, where like I was using the Marshall into a 412, an old Marshall, you know, into an old 412, and then taking a line out off of that with a little box, yeah. you know, where you'd use the separate speaker out and take a line out into, uh, into like, a you know, a delay, a PCM41, or sometimes even an Echoplex, an actual yeah. EP3. And you'd send that into a separate amp. So you'd have like a wet, dry thing. I never really okay. did the wet, dry, wet the right. 80s wet dry because mainly because i just never had the gear and never had the means to afford that whole kind of setup because my um my rig was always it was more just kind of like you know what's the chewing gum and band-aids type <laughs> of <laughs> type of you just patched together with yeah with things and and uh but i always yeah. love the parallel effects and currently what i'm doing is i'm doing a do you know you know stevie fryette from, from well, yeah like, yeah. Well, VHC, yeah he came out with a device called a power station I have one of those a few years ago and that just changed my entire world because now I could take out I could use you know like my hundred watt Plexi I could use it at the baked potato you know and I could use at it with this power station and it has a great effects loop in it so I could plug in an EP like an actual echo plex into the loop of the power station and then run it all into one cabinet to bring two cabs
0: and so you're not I mean, for people who aren't familiar with, like, if you run the echo of any kind straight into the front of the amp, yeah. you're gonna it can be a lot more messy, and it'll do all that weird ducking, and then jump out. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's being the echoes are being distorted, but this yeah. box, you run your amp into it, yeah. And then you get that tone, the power tubes, and then yeah. you add the echo after it.
1: Yeah, delays work great into a clean amp, like like yeah. right now I'm using this this Echo Plex pedal. Uh, this Dunlop Echo Plex pedal into this deluxe, and you know, and it yeah. oh. and it sounds,
0: you know, and it sounds great. <laughs> I you know, love the little bar thing at the end. <laughs> 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 yeah. Sorry, bar Sorry. trickery. Yeah, it's tasty. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Um, but it, you know, it, the second that you take a, a an amp. And you okay. start turning it up to where the amp is distorting, and you're getting that great power section distortion out of the amp, or even even an amp with preamp gain, yeah. and you're turning it up. But you run a, a a delay pedal in front of a delay pedal or a delay device in front of it. It's your clean signal that's from your guitar that's hitting that that pedal before it sees that dirty amp. So you're getting like this great you know overdriven amplifier, but you're getting these like really clean sparkly delays that are thats what's being delayed into the amp and it winds up sounding kind of harsh so the ideal spot for for delay is always kind of as we call it post you know like after the distortion yeah
0: and and um that's why if you're running an amp with an effects loop and you're not really driving the power tubes and you're only driving the preamp tubes it works pretty well because you're getting the delay after the preamp yeah yeah but once you get that juicy power tube distortion, yeah, it's ideal if you can get the yeah. delay after that.
1: And that's, that's how it, yeah, that's the ideal place to run any kind of So, light. yeah,
0: that thing is so great, the power station. And yeah. also, like you said, it lets you bring the volume down to a yeah. manageable level. And yeah. so those two things alone make it yeah. so genius. You know that Boss, Roland Boss, is coming out with a competing product now, too.
1: Uh, their version of the Ox. Yeah,
0: yeah it, but it also uh, does the power station. Yeah. yeah. Although it's not doesn't have now we're geeking out but the power station we has are. two power amp in it yes i don't, I don't think the yeah. boss has two yeah
1: power it has amp. its own power section and the power yeah. station does and it's just great really uh super transparent yeah. 50 watt uh power amp that's built into it and the great thing the thing that i immediate because i've used virtually every attenuation device under the sun at once or tried them i've in and they all would color the thing that i they would color the tone they would like change it yeah. and you'd have to kind of re-EQ your amp around it. You know, they could still work yeah. and still sound good. they bring the volume down and everything, yeah.
0: but they would change it. Yeah,
1: and then you'd have to rethink your where your normal EQ settings would be on the amp. The thing that I immediately loved about the power station was it was very transparent. You could just kind of dial your amp in the way that you normally do, uh, and then you would kick in the, the power, you know, because it has a standby switch that basically yeah. takes this, the circuitry the attenuation circuitry in and out and you could just kind of a b it and you kick in the power station and it was and it's like oh it's that sound just quieter just yeah. less of it and so um, great and i know that he I, I got i think i have one of the first generation ones i think there might be a, a newer one but it's like uh, the one i have oh like, i got the new
0: one it's so much better man yeah dude you gotta get no, it i'm just kidding i, I forget but, what the difference
1: <laughs> but my current setup what i've been mainly using lately is uh, i have a a, a friedman Dirty Shirley, which is a real yeah. kind of a 50 watt Marshall based type of type of amp. And um, I run it into that power station. I take an EchoPlex EP3. I put it into the loop of the power station. So it's like post. And I also have a, um, that little MXR. You're talking about a real tape delay EchoPlex? Yeah, you got echo, yeah an wow. actual EP3. Um, and, uh, and I take that a little reverb pedal and I put it in the loop also uh, after the delay. Because I've become a real—I was saying earlier—I've become a real reverb nerd. Where I used to love playing dry. Come on, it's got to be completely dry. And I love verb now. It's just—it adds such depth to the sound. It makes it easier to kind of self-mix on a bandstand and incorporate yourself into the. The sound isn't just so right up there in your face. It's easier to—I don't know—for me, anyways. And it just makes things have a little bit more depth to the. To the sound and it changes the way things feel, so I don't feel like I need to dig in quite so hard anymore, and you know. Yeah. But um, but I'll do that, and that's kind of been my setup of of late, like, you know. Into a four twelve, I love four twelves.
0: Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah, you got it going on, man. Yeah. Have you ever, have you tried the Comet Am- Ambi Cab from Comet K O M E T? I have not. That one's kind of cool because it has a internal power amp, so you can. It's a you get it's got two it's got 10 inch speakers on top. That runs your effects separately, like you said. So this right. is a true wet, dry, wet rig. Right. So you got stereo effects on the top that are yeah. running through an internal power amp that are that's in the cabinet.
1: Wait a minute, and I then, did try one of
0: those. And then I, you got the two twelves on the bottom for your amp. So you Yeah. Crank your amp through the two twelves on the bottom, but it also takes a split off your amp so you can get that power tube distortion going yeah. to your effects, which go through the two tens on top.
1: Yes. <laughs> I think I did try. I think there. Were, I think Dave Friedman had one over at his place. I have a feeling I might have.
0: There's, there's so many ways to go. Yeah, I know. It's you know. So um, let's get back to your life story real quick. So you went to MI. I mean, yeah. we, you know, obviously a lot of fantastic teachers there. Great place to meet a lot of people. What did you do after you? Uh,
1: that was it, it. Was early. I mean, early '80s is when I went there. It Was a completely different vibe over there at that point. A whole different faculty for the most part. I mean. Um, except for Dan Gilbert, who I think is, still, is Dan Gilbert's still there. Well,
0: Dan Gilbert is in the room today because I was thinking of him when I asked you if you practice every day because I always, he practices every morning before yeah. he goes to school, man, like two hours. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, well, Dan Gilbert was there when I was a student there, and he's still there. He's been, uh, he's like a legend over there now. But um, after MI, I went um, back to San Diego and... Uh, I just started because I went back and I think I started teaching guitar at a a shop and then I started playing, just picket trying to get gigs, you know? Yeah. And I was, I, thinking back, I think my initial plan was after MI, I was going to go to another school. I remember actually applying to Carnegie Mellon, which I don't know why I ever applied there, but I think at the time there was like a, they had like a sort of a conservatory music program Uh there and that really interested me and I was like... Yeah, I want to go here, and I think I applied there, and I might have even been thinking about Berkeley College of Music. But, you know, I, at the time, I, you know, I had just come out of high school, gone straight from high school. I graduated, like, midterm, you know, where after one semester of your senior year, and then immediately, like, moved to L.A. and gone to MI. And MI was a pretty nice. intense experience back then, because I was just playing all the time. It was also, from a, a from a personal standpoint, it was also kind of a tough time, because... Like right after I moved to Los Angeles to go to MI, my my mom passed away. So oh, it was man. just kind of a, it was just sort of a heavy time. And then yeah. once I kind of got through, and there were times where I was like almost bail out of MI. I was like, I, you know, this just, I need to just take a step back and not do this. But I managed to get through it. And um, You mean
0: it was overwhelming the information or? Yeah,
1: overwhelming the information all and the just players. all the shit that it was just having to deal with all this kind of change in my,
0: yeah. you
1: know, in my, you know. In my life, you know, losing life, my mom, you lost your and, mom,
0: and then L.A.'s fucking weird.
1: Yeah, and then moving to to you know Hollywood, and you know it was just all very overwhelming. And but I I, I managed to make it through. And then afterwards, I moved back to San Diego. But then I started getting gigs, and I think I just sort of at that point jettisoned the idea of going to school anymore because I was like, I just I want to just play guitar, no more school. Yeah. I'm done. But I did at that point start studying with a, another great player named Peter Sprague um yeah. who's a, a phenomenal like jazz and bebop player and straight ahead player. And I started studying with him when I was right when I went back to San Diego yeah. and he showed me I probably learned more from him in like the two to three years that I was hanging with him than I could have ever learned at any other school, you know. And I was also getting to play a lot. I was starting to work a lot of gigs, get in, get in like working bands. Yeah. You know, I had been in bands all through high school where we would play parties, and you know, and that was the extent of my professional
0: experience up till then. But well, you did your share of pop gigs too. I, I know that you played with Jewel and yeah, that Michelle was later Branch. on.
1: That was much later. I I I, I played like with Jewel for something, for a little while. I played with Michelle Branch for a while. That, I mean, God, that was so long ago at this point. But yeah.
0: What was that experience like for you? I mean, these are huge names, especially Jewel, but also Michelle. I mean, I personally I love that stuff too. I love yeah. pop music, ear candy, I'm into everything.
1: You know, I had to I had to sort of the irony of it is is at the time I really didn't care about that music and about those artists all that much, but to me it was just it was a gig. You know, and I was like, "Oh, yeah. I'm getting a I'm getting a gig. I'm going on tour and this is going to be great." But I really had to kind of like learn their music. I wasn't, you know, super familiar with a lot of their, you know, um, Jewel, I knew a little bit of, of her stuff, but, you know. Yeah. But the th- the funny thing is, is not that I would ever, ever get called for a gig like that now because I'm way too old, um, but I would love to do a gig like that never, now. <laughs>
3: really? Because
1: I'm so much more into that type of music now. You know, playing, behind, playing like pop music behind a singer is something that is like... Hell yeah.
0: I'll do that yeah. all day long. Oh, like,
1: that be I'd be able to have a lot more fun with it now than I did back then. I um, think it's probably coming for you, man. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'd, look I'd
0: at be. Landau and James Taylor and stuff. There, there's some great gigs out there for some monster players. Well, the
1: difference there is Mike's been doing that gig for many, many, many years. And, yeah. you know... Um,
0: you never know, man. That Doctor John thing just came out of the sky. You it know. did. It, it these things. Out, Drop out of the
1: sky. But, but uh, speaking of Jewel, it's like I, I really that gig with her was cu- unfortunately cut short because that was in two thousand one, and September eleventh happened, and uh, slowly, you know, we had a bunch of stuff on the books like well into the two thousand two, and slowly stuff started like dropping off. You know, gigs started canceling, and then finally she was just like. I'm pulling the plug. We'll weird. We'll, re, we'll regroup next year, and then she had recently relocated to Nashville and was trying to do the Nashville thing, and then got like all of her Nashville guys. Yeah,
0: you know, pop um, gigs are weird. They're kind of like anonymous. Like yeah, like you're you'll, disposable. You'll, you're, you'll do it for a while, and it'll be you'll have a deep connection with the artist, and then yeah, next yeah. year they're doing something totally different in another place. I love
1: yeah. I'm I. That's how you're the you're disposable. You're the disposable band is what I always called it. You know, you could be. Be tight and hanging on a bus every day, and just living your, you know, every day, day in day out, uh, around these people, and then it's over. And then the tour manager calls you and says, "All right, uh, thanks." You know, or if they call you at all, yeah, right. you know, <laughs> and 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 that's it, that's it, and you're just you're done. It's what like it Michelle never Branch happened. What
0: was Michelle Branch like? She must have been pretty young when you're.
1: She was pretty young. I think she was like 21 or so at the time. I um, it was. Uh, it was a weird experience for me. Yeah. I I don't know that. I mean, I was like forty when I was doing that gig, so it was uh, quite a bit. Old. I was in my late thirties, I think. So I was quite a bit. I was quite a bit older than her. I didn't really, you know, at the time that I did the gig, it was like, I was basically told, you know, they give you they give you the the, the music, and then they give you some like live, some show recordings from like the previous band or whatever, and they're like, you know, here, learn this guy's parts learn the parts because yeah. the, the, the albums are all super produced with like a hundred guitar parts on them and yeah. you know and then so they'll give you a show recording and say learn just cop this guy's parts don't interpret them don't do your own thing just learn just play it just like this Every time, and it was like, and that's exactly what I did. Um, what I did my best to do, and I think right. I did. So even the solos, there was a couple of songs where I would solo, but it was it was basically the solo that was on the record, you know, which yeah. I think was John Shanks, you know, yeah. and because um, and he produced a lot of that stuff, and so I would just play that solo every night. There was no, it wasn't a you know it wasn't the type of gig where you're going out there and stretching out, but but it's a pop gig. That's what it is. Yeah. That's what the gig is, and that's fine. And Kenny Aronoff was on was in the band who was wow. great Kenny and I got to become friends and I'm still friends with him to this day and monster but it, drummer but and he was great in that in that gig and um but it was I don't know how much I want to say <laughs> <about> <laughs> that. well you know because it wasn't the most positive experience for me just because I didn't really bond with everyone in the organization. I don't know that I really bonded with her. Although I did see her years later. I ran into her at Paquito Moss and she was incredibly sweet and very <laughs> nice. And, and I, and I really wish I could have a do over on that one. Cause I might've approached the whole thing. You know, I, you know, I tried to go in and just be like this professional that was going to go in and just play my parts and just show up okay. on time. And, you know, but I think she wanted, she wanted like a group of, a posse a, yeah a posse to hang uh, with and I and, and I was yeah so I, I there, so, yeah so the, the, there was a yeah. little bit, sort of this Lord of the Flies type of environment t- started to develop and I was kind of the I felt like I was a little bit the odd man out but I just tried to be pro and be on time and show up at lobby call and be at the gigs and yeah. you know when I was supposed to be and play my parts right consistently every night but I, I don't know that everyone in the band was really liked me all that much Oh, and, well. and I mean, you know, what are you going to do? But, but like I said, I, I did make a great friend in, in, uh, in Kenny. He sort of, Kenny was funny. He sort of floated above the fray. Like on, we'd have a couple of days off in like New York. Or so he'd fly back to L.A. to do sessions and meet us at the next gig. It was pretty funny. You wow, know?
0: that's a workaholic so, right there. Yeah, so
1: he and I actually became, and he and I are still friends. And I, I feel, so if anything, yeah. nice came out of that gig it was that i i i got to know him and brad fernquist was the the at the time the the md who's a, a guitar player and and he and i have since become pretty close yeah. friends as well and and so that's great and like i said i ran into her years later and and saw her at at the restaurant and and she was very nice and very sweet and but um jewel on the other hand i had a great time playing with yeah. instantly instantly loved her and had a really good time, and I, I really regret that that gig ended the way that it did, yeah, and weird. that it couldn't have gone on longer, because I really did have a fun time. And I really wish that, you know, if there was anyone that I could go back and, like, you know, which one of these, like, artists from back then, I'd really love to work with her again, you know. You but work? I think she mainly does, like, a lot of solo things now, but I Give really... A call, dude. I've really... <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, I have her number right here. Sure you do. But, you got her manager or something? Yeah,
1: but she was great. I really <laughs> did. I dug her. She had this incredibly dry sense of humor that just instantly clicked with me. I was oh, like, yeah. yeah, I like you. What'd she say? <laughs> you know, she one time. I think at the at the first rehearsal, because we rehearsed for a few days before she came in, and then she came in, and we were at center staging, and and she came in, and um, and the one of the guys in the band says that we were trying to work out a you know a an arrangement or a transition from one song into another something. And, and one of the guys like, he was like, I have an idea. Um, maybe we could. And then he stops and he's like, nah, never mind. And, was, and she's yeah. like, no, no. She's like, tell me, I, I she goes, I want to hear your ideas. I'm not going to use them, but I still want to hear them. And I said, like, she said that, and I was like, I was like, you and I could probably be friends. You know, Keep, we're going to get along just, we're going to get along just fine. <laughs> you know? Um, that's funny. Yeah, and that was sort of that sort of sums up her, you know, she was very just dry and sarcastic and I was instantly clicked with me, you know. Well, and, I think she
0: could use a brilliantly guitar player just the way she could be your James Taylor, man. We got to yeah, make this man. happen. I, mean, I would I would
1: if if I got yeah. the offer to to work with her again in, in any capacity, I would before the offer was even out of their mouth, I would I would it would be a, a fast yes for me. Well, I, I really dug her, and and oh my God, what a talent! And and that was one of those things where, until I started working with her, I didn't realize how legit she is. Yeah, you know, I almost said she was, but you I know, I think she's, she's, she's due for a comeback. Is, you know? She's due for a
0: comeback, man. And uh, yeah, it's,
1: insanely talented. Where I would just you know even before we ever got out of rehearsals, I would just be looking over like holy shit.
0: That's yeah. awesome, man. I yeah. love that stuff. Well nineties yeah. are coming back. <laughs> 2000s, <laughs> that was that was in the 2000s. Yeah. She was two thousand Yeah, that was, was yeah, in right? the that So yeah, That's about yeah. to make a huge comeback. You watch, man. Yeah, man. I'm gonna she be there to. for that. She you know, for to. that you deserve it, man. So tell me this. What's it like winning a Grammy for playing rock guitar instrumental with well you in your case it was Zappa play Zappa with yeah. Weasel. Yeah, and I guess it was your guys's version of Peaches and Regalia.
1: Yeah, it was from we did a DVD, a live DVD from that we filmed at the very end of our two thousand six two thousand six tour, which was our, our right. first year. Basically, we'd gone out and we had we rehearsed like for three months solid, and then I think of May of that year we went out and we kind of you know we've come home for a few weeks and no right there yeah. stopping
0: you that's the yeah. difference between dr john and three hours of rehearsal zappa plays zappa. three, <laughs> three months, months three months of
1: rehearsal yeah yeah three and months. i
0: saw that show it's mind-boggling just purely from a memorization standpoint when i saw yeah. you guys i just couldn't like i saw you a couple times one time opening for dream theater i think or sharing yeah, that, the bill another yeah time that with,
1: was in 2009 or 10 when we did the dream another theater time tour. with
0: uh Jeff Beck at the Nokia Theater. Yeah. That was fantastic, yeah. double bill and, and just mind boggling yeah. to see that just that you guys could even memorize all that stuff, let alone play it.
1: Yeah, my mind was probably at its sharpest back then. It's turned to mush now, but <laughs> um but yeah, we did a tour with Return to Forever that was a lot of fun. Also we were out with him for a couple of months and it was awesome but but the very our very first year out was 2006 and that's the year that Vibe Steve was with us and yeah. Terry Bozio was with us and the show was like three hours plus you know some nights and but we were um, but that was a really intense year and at the very I think our last it was filmed like in December of 2006 so it was our last few shows before we took off for the holidays and we came back in like February or March of 2007, we filmed two shows and they kind of called them together and made this DVD. Um, and then the and then they also released a like a soundtrack album from the DVD. And that was the that version of Peaches and Regalia that we did from the live DVD. That was what got nominated for a Grammy for best instrumental rock performance. And um, and we were up against like I think Rush and and David Gilmore and and Trent Reznor and. I think Metallica was even in our category for some reason. They had done something, and we won. And it was a tri- it was very much a, a trip.
0: How do the Grammys work? Like, I understand, of course. I It'd don't be... know. <laughs> well, I was going to say just the actual dispersal of the awards. They have so many awards that obviously they only do like the twelve giant categories during the national broadcast. Yeah, yeah. So for I'm not sure if you guys were on that. I imagine.
1: No there there was the the bulk of the awards take place in the in the afternoon. And I've heard um, about
0: that afternoon session. What's that like? Yeah,
1: it's it's at, it's at the um, well this was at the Staples Center. So there is like you know one of the other sort of ancillary enormous. Ballrooms, yeah, halls inside of the Staples complex over there. And that's where the, that's where, and there's like 300 categories. So you're there for hours, you know, and it's just packed. And as they go through these categories, as people win or lose, they leave and they go. And if you win, you go and you do the whole press line. And then if you lose and you leave and you go and you eat and you wait until the televised thing and you come back and that's in the, the main Staples arena.
0: So, get, so it's just a thrill even just to be nominated. Yeah. You get to go to the show and take part in the events. So yeah. did you wear a tuxedo or what? No, I, 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 I
1: just, I kind of tried to dress as nice as I could. And, and um, I remember I went with, uh, I think Sheila, Sheila Gonzalez and Billy Helting who's a percussionist. I think we all carpooled down there together and, Pete Griffin might have ridden with us. I can't remember. But we went down there and then they catch this little shuttle and it takes you into the thing. And if you're nominated, you I think you had a little thing that says you're a nominee and you go to this... Special
0: parking because of... See, the perks already. No special
1: parking, you know. And there was no swag bag. I thought I was going to get all this great swag. I didn't get anything. I think I got some, like shampoo or something you know
0: you didn't get a louis vuitton like i didn't get anything
1: um you go in and we were way down on the list we were like category number like 290 or something so by the time they call us and they get to our category the room is practically empty you know but they're doing a live stream that year and um and they did have a band they had basically it was the a lot of the guys from the Kimmel band toshi and i think babco was up there and um you know cool. in in this band, and they were they were doing the the pre telecast uh thing, and they call us and we we win, and I think I blacked out for a moment when that happened, and people are watching on the on online they're watching the live stream of it, and I had my phone in my pocket set to vibrate, and immediately my phone starts buzzing i'm we're okay. walking up to accept it, and my phone's like going off in my pocket and Toshi was up there, and Toshi's like. It's like, oh my God, you won <laughs> you guys <laughs> he's won.
0: He's playing in the band. Yeah,
1: and he's in the band <laughs> and, and you know. Um but it was That's a lot amazing. of fun. It was it was definitely it's probably the only way I'm ever gonna win a Grammy, but you know, they you do your little acceptance speeches and all of us said a little something. I said some I said hi to my son or something like that, who at the time was, you know, like five years old or something and um, That's great. And then you go back and you do the whole press line, and it's a whole thing. They give you a Grammy. They give you, and it's an actual Grammy award, you know, but it's blank. It hasn't been etched. It hasn't been etched. It doesn't have the nameplate on it or anything, and it's just for the photos. And as soon as you're done with the whole press line, they're waiting. There's someone at the end with a cart and a polish rag, and they snatch that thing out of your hands. and Thank you. Know, <laughs>
0: they take it back from you. You get in the and mail. Like you get in the mail a couple months, months later. Yeah, a couple months later. What a thrill. You must have been like walking a foot taller yeah. the whole time just that whole just your head spinning
1: that whole night was great sheila and i were recently talking about that again because you go to the the telecast and uh um, and you you watch it and um i think i made it through most of it i think radio had played that year and allison krauss and robert plant were there it was kind of yeah, cool to see it. and that was a year that i think stevie wonder played with like the jonas brothers or something it was a little bit of a interesting yeah. pairing but um I made it through most of the televised thing. and then uh, Sheila and Billy and I were we we were all hungry because we'd been there all day at that point. there's like no food, and we're like, let's get some we're starving, we're dying. Let's get something to eat. So we leave, and then uh, we go and grab something to eat, and we're just about ready to leave. We're like, all right, well, let's go to the car, and I guess we'll just go home. And then we hear from I think it was that same big giant ballroom where the pre-telecast had been. Yeah. There's now a a party going on and we're like, what's going on in there? And we we hear something and it sounds like Morris Day and the Time. And and Sheila's like, holy shit, is that Morris Day and the Time? Let's, and we wound up going and that was like this big after party yeah. thing. So we wound up going in there and it was this enormous party and Morris Day and the Time were playing. We wound up staying for another like two or three hours, had an amazing time. And he had a great time. And Billy's telling everyone, we just want a Grammy. We just want a Grammy. That's you great. Know? And then there's a shuttle bus take you back to the parking lot where your car is parked, and we get on it, Billy Hulting's all, you know, he steps on, and it's full of people. And Billy's like, i just like everyone to know that I want a Grammy today.
0: And everyone <laughs> starts applauding. Oh, man, that's wonderful. Yeah, so man. Was, what a wonderful. It's a great
1: memory. Yeah, it was really a lot of fun, and it was a really cool thing to have happened. But, you know, it's also one of those things where you're like, Oh my God, I have you know, my career's gonna take off. This is it. You know, this i I've arrived.
0: Dude, you know, you, now you're on and, No is Safe podcast. Yeah, see? You see?
1: And, and it really didn't amount to anything. The Grammy really didn't do anything for me. But, you know, um, so it's you, a good resume oh, look, thing. I think I'm looking at it right yeah, there. Yeah, there it is right there. It's Check a good, it out. It's a good resume builder. You know, you can put it on your resume, and you can say Grammy Award winning guitarist. But it looks kind of impressive.
0: It. It's a little bigger than I thought they were.
1: It's big and heavy. That one's kind of, it, it needs cleaning. I need no, to get I like some it. brass it looks, polish. You, um, should,
0: you know what you should do? Take that and make a brass nut and brass saddles for, like, one of your favorite guitars and be like, I'm right. pl- playing, like, this I'm is my Grammy we, tone right yeah. here.
1: <laughs> Someone told me, yeah, I should make a cod piece out of it or a hood ornament for
0: your car. Um, th- I mean, you could just take some of it and, like, slice out. Yeah. Like, I'm getting so crazy here. Slice out the middle section of that, <laughs> drop it down, and then you have enough to make some saddles and a and a brass nut.
1: I could sell them. It's a Grammy
0: yeah. Saddle, be, you know
1: uh george carlin who by that point had already was already had already died but he won a um you know a, a posthumous award for an album or or for maybe some kind of like you yeah. know lifetime recording achievement or something like that and his daughter was there and accepted the award for him and went up and she actually told a funny story about how you know in the, in the 70s he won for one of his albums like Occupation Fool or something like that and and he got um and he got was maybe under the influence of of some substances and proceeded to dismantle his grammy award and took it apart and then when he the next day i guess couldn't figure out how to put it back together so had to go to the grammy organization and she was like they were gracious enough to give him a new one you know with the new engraving and everything but they're like
0: we'll just give you a new one much easier it it was
1: kind of funny because she's talking about like he decided it would be in his state a good idea to take it apart but you know because it's an interesting thing because you have to sign a thing that says it's it's the it's the property of the National, uh, National Association of Recording Arts and Sciences, and it's Narris. Right. They actually own it. It's, so if you, but, you can't sell it, I can't take it to a pawn shop and pawn it or else I can you know
0: That's kind of a bummer.
1: Yeah, so so it's that's on loan permanently,
0: I guess. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, well, cool, let me look at the clock here. Go for quite a while.: Yeah, hey, it's been awesome. a lot of editing to do. Oh, yeah, it always takes a couple hours. Yeah. Oh, man, well, thank you so much for doing this, Jamie. My gosh, very generous. Thanks, busy man. F-
1: thanks for having me on. I hope it wasn't horribly boring for your audience, but
0: uh, I think it was quite the opposite. Yeah, quite the opposite. It's fun. Sure. I mean, it's just fun
1: sitting around talking about guitars. I don't know how interesting it is for like the general public to listen in on this, but oh, you're a, gonna no, you're gonna make yeah. a
0: lot of people happy with everything mm-hmm. you shared today. Cool. Let's cool. jam out into the sunset. Excellent.
1: What do you want to play?
0: I don't know, a little blues or anything. Tell me.
1: Um there's the old Freddie hubbard povo jam 12 bar form c minor and then um instead of the four chord it goes to a flat 13 and then the turnaround is uh, uh b flat major 7 flat 5 a major 7 flat 5. so did oh. i say b flat major i meant b b major 7 flat 5.
0: all oh, right okay yeah, then A
1: major 7. So it's a 12-bar form. So it's like, uh, it goes like this. 3, 4... response saying then you'd oh. play that
3: nice
0: now one time at the baked potato jam I think Freddie Hubbard fucking came and stopped by you. he your did jam. yeah did he play uh, he did not did you talk to
1: him uh, I didn't I think John Ziegler mm-hmm. did oh man I think his lip was like pretty fucked up at that point I don't think he could really
0: play that's anymore that's a brutal instrument yeah. man trumpet. live alive till you're 95, Jamie. <laughs> no,